Good morning, good morning, good morning. I am Mary Lessman. I am Associate for Spiritual Growth here at St. Michael, and I am um, honored to be here with you today in the Rector's Bible Study. Um, Chris, our fearless leader, has an all-day commitment, and so um, he is unable to be here today, and I get um, the fun of coming and being with you to finish the book of Daniel. So I don't know about you, but um, I spent a lot of time last night watching results. And so I think it's apropos that we might start our day by keeping our country in prayer as we continue to walk through um, a situation that's not quite settled yet. We continue to get more and more clarity, but we're not quite there yet. And so I think it's a great thing to remember what Chris told us on Sunday in his sermon, which is that we are held by God and we are God's people. And there's no situation and no reality on this earth that can separate us from God. And that in the midst of that, in the midst of all of the uncertainty and division that we might find in the world, we as Christian disciples are called to witness to God's reign and God's holiness and, um, and our hope and trust that all of this resides in God's hands. So I think that's a good place for us to start. Let's keep our, our congregation in prayer and our country in prayer. And um, also our uh, Rector Chris will be traveling later this week um, to family for his grandmother's funeral. And so I ask that you also keep him and his family in prayer as he heads that way. Well, our topic for today are the last two um, chapters of Daniel. Um, chapters 11 and 12. That's going to be what we're covering today. I just thought I would start for my benefit, if not even for yours, is to kind of summarize a little bit where we've been and where we are today, um, because I haven't been with you for all of this study. And so when I went back to look at preparing for these two chapters, it was... Um, good for me to go back and kind of just quickly look over the book of Daniel and kind of see where we've been. So I want to remind you that the first part of the book of Daniel was the tales. And now that was chapters one through six. And those are those great stories that we hear about Daniel in the lion's den and the three men in the furnace who don't, who don't get burned, Rackshack and Benny, as we like to say from um, Veggie Tales. But this second half of the book of Daniel, chapters seven through 12, are the visions and these visions reference events that were actually happening in about 164 to 167 BCE, which is the date of the authorship of these visions. So a point that I want to make that I understand Chris has been making um, as well is that the stories that we're hearing, even though they are written as prophecy, are really referencing things that are going on right then, contemporarily. Um, but they use coded language for safety, um, and they also are writing these stories and putting it out there for hope, for those who are under the reign of other people um, to, be, to continue to hold them up, that, that God is part of this sweep of history, and that in the end, God's people will be um, brought out of it um, and will um, find their fulfillment, Right. So let's talk a little bit about the context of where we're sitting right now in this story. This is the time of the Seleucid Empire, and the king is Greek. 
So King Antiochus has been selling to the highest bidder the high priest position in Jerusalem. And so the, this was being sold to Jews, and they kind of allowed Jerusalem to continue to function consistent with their tradition, right? They, they got to be a, a smaller leader under the greater empire in this particular part of the realm. And um, so the Jewish people were able to operate within Jerusalem in ways that they had been used to being able to. However, at, at, at a point, this arrangement no longer serves Antiochus um, due to kind of political and empire reasons. And so at that point, he completely Hellenizes the temple. And the, the date that kind of is in all the books is on December 15th, 167 BCE, Antiochus outlawed the Jewish book of the law, and he built a Greek altar in the temple, built a Greek altar in the temple. And so in Daniel, when you hear this reference to the abomination of desolation, the sacrilege, right, desolating sacrilege, this is what they're referencing is this date and this happening, that there was um, a Greek altar put into um, the Jerusalem temple. And so this period, this kind of sets off, actually, the Maccabean Revolt and the retaking of Jerusalem for Judaism for many years. And so you can read about the Maccabees. If you want to follow this line of history about what's going on a little further after you complete the book of Daniel, you could actually read about the Maccabees in the Apocrypha. And the Apocrypha is the section of the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And those of you have probably heard me talk about this before when we talk about the Apocrypha, but the Apocrypha came about, Apocrypha came about because we had um, the Hebrew, after, after Christianity um, comes and it's starting to have conflict within Judaism, those who are followers of Jesus in Judaism and those who are not, um, eventually... The Jewish faith says we need to set ourselves apart from Christianity. And so we don't have a, a hard date, but it's believed um, that at the Jamnia Council in 90 CE, so 90 after, um, that that is when um, Judaism set their canon. And they kind of... Um, arbitrarily set the cutoff date for the Hebrew scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, as writings that happened through the book of Ezra, through the time of Ezra. And so those, all of those books were um, included in the Old Testament canon. But the problem was, is that because we have the Roman Empire and because of the Pax Romana, people were able to travel all over. There were a lot of folks from all over the empire who had come into Jerusalem and been exposed to the God of Israel. And a lot of these folks became, not a lot, but a, a significant number of folks became God-fearers. And then they went back home or back to wherever they lived in the empire. So we had written a Greek Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was the Hebrew scriptures up to that time. And this was so that those who lived in other parts that didn't know Hebrew would have their scriptures of the God of Israel, right? The problem is, is there were books included in the Septuagint that had been written um, that were not included in that canon of the Hebrew scripture that was sent by the Council of Jamnia in 90 CE, right? So you have these extra books. 
that's where the apocrypha comes from. So um, the interesting thing is that if you look at our, the, the way that we incorporated all of that and the different Christian traditions and how they um, uh, accounted for that, you have the Roman Catholic Church who took the Septuagint path and said, we're going to say everything that was in that Greek copy of the Hebrew writings is going to be considered the Old Testament. So the um, Catholic tradition has all of those books that, are, that we know as being in the Apocrypha. Those are in their Old Testament. If you look at Protestant traditions, they did not include the Apocrypha. They only take the um, canon that was set by the Jewish faith, which cut off at that 400 BCE or at that time of Ezra, right? And so we Anglicans, once again, who I love to point out, we kind of took the middle road and we said, well, those books in the middle might not be carry the weight of Holy Scripture that the canon that was set, the Hebrew Scripture canon that was set does, but they're still edifying and they're good for us to know. And there's good stories in there that reveal God. So we're going to put them in anyway, even though we don't consider them Holy Scripture. And so um, what you'll notice, I kind of wanted to show you because it's pretty big. So first of all, from there to there... All of that right there that you can see, that's the Old Testament. Then you have this, which is the Apocrypha, which is pretty significant because compare it to the New Testament. It's actually about the same size, right? So we have a lot of stuff in the Apocrypha, some really interesting things in there. And so at some point, you might want to read through that. You might even suggest um, using it for a study maybe in, in future. And I'm going to tell you my one Apocrypha story that I love. Um, there's several, but I'm going to tell you one. And then uh, we're going to move on and actually get into the content for Daniel today. In the wedding ceremony, there is a suggested reading from the book of Tobit. And Tobit is one of the books in the Apocrypha. And so I invite you to read it sometime. It's kind of interesting. But basically, what the situation in, in that book is that there is a woman who has been married seven times and every time she's gotten married, her husband has died on their wedding night. And so a gentleman comes in and he's going to marry her. And of course, there's a lot of fear about whether he's going to make it through the night because none of her other husbands have made it through the night. And so the, the, the part, the portion of Tobit that's actually designated for a wedding is a, a place where the woman and the man are kneeling together, praying to God that he would bless their marriage and that he would help this gentleman survive through the night. And he does, in fact, spoiler alert, survive through the night. So that's one of my funny ones. But there's lots of great stories in the Apocrypha in addition to that. Okay, so let's go ahead and start. I'm going to start by reading through. This is chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. As for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to support and strengthen him. Now I will announce the truth to you. Three more kings shall arise in Persia. The fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a warrior king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and take action as he pleases. And while still rising in power, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to his dominion with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be uprooted and go to others beside these. 
So you can already tell that the, the way that this book is being written is already this kind of verbiage of um, prophecy, that it is, um, and, and visions, but we'll get to the visions, but it is, um, it is, it's kind of broad, no names, no direct details, right? Um, this was very common. It was a way that, that um, Jews were able to write stories to one another without crossing any lines with um, Greece originally and then Rome, who were ruling over them, um, so that they could kind of communicate with one another in ways that were safe and that protected them. So you can kind of hear this. So this first year of Darius the Mede that he starts with places the prophecy back into the time of the Jewish Babylonian exile. So again, those first six chapters of Daniel where we get all the stories, those were also stories that were pushed back into the time of the Babylonian exile, which is why they got included in the canon. Because even though these stories that we're talking about right now were written after that time of Ezra designation for the Old Testament, because those initial books actually dealt with the period of the exile, it became part of the canon. Um, but I want you to get that what we're talking about here and what we're going to unpack has to do with what's currently happening in Greek history. It's what is going on between the Ptolemies in the south and the Seleucids in the north. Um, and it's the human action that corresponds with the celestial battle between Michael, who's the patron saint of Israel, and the angelic princes of Persia and Greece. That's kind of going to be what we're talking through here, this whole section. Um, the four Persian kings that are referenced here um, all appear in scripture in other places, and they are Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and Adaxerxes. So those are the four um, Persian kings that they're talking about. And the warrior king that's being referenced here is Ale Alexander the Great, who is ruling over all at this point, and his kingdom was divided into four parts. And we're going to be mostly concerned with two of these areas that are fighting each other. And so I actually found it kind of interesting and went back and um, looked at um, what timetable we're looking here. So as we're talking about, Alexander the Great, who is Greek, is in charge at this point, right? He's a leader in this point. And then we're going to get to um, 149, and that is, which is more recent than the period that we're talking about today. And that's when Rome kind of takes leadership from Greece, and then it becomes the Roman Empire. So 146, 149 BCE. That's what you want to be thinking um, about in terms of when that shift happens. But of course, during all of this, Israel is still under domain of a foreign power. Okay, so let's read verses uh, 5 to 9. Then the king of the south shall grow strong, but one of his officers shall grow stronger than he, and shall rule a realm greater than his own realm. After some years, they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to ratify the agreement. But she shall not retain her power, and his offspring shall not endure. She shall be given up, she and her attendants and her child and the one who supported her. In those times, a branch from her roots shall rise up in his place. 
He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall take action against them and prevail. Even their gods with their idols and with their precious vessels of silver and gold, he shall carry off to Egypt as spoils of war. For some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter shall invade the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. So it's a little confusing there. We're getting a lot of king of the north, king of the south, coded language again. So let's talk about what they're really talking about. The king of the south is Ptolemy I Soter, who ruled over Egypt. And his officer, Seleucus one Nicator ruled over Babylon. So here's what I want to show you. And our friend Adam is going to help me out because he's going to put a map up on the screen so that you can see. And I am going to show you this um, just so I can point things out to you. But this is not going to be near as easy to see as what Adam's putting up for us. But what I want you to see is that over to the east, you see where Babylon is noted over here. And then over to the west, you see where Egypt is. These are the two areas that are being fought over as we talk about this whole section. So when they're talking about the king from the north, they're talking about the ruler of Babylon. And when they're talking about the king of the south, they're talking about the ruler of Egypt. Both of these were leaders who were under Alexander the Great, but they were given control over these two parts. So Alexander had divided his area, his realm into four areas. And these are two of those four areas. And this is an account of their ongoing back and forth with each other. So I want you to kind of have that visual of where we're talking about. And as you can see, Jerusalem is right in the middle, right? It's right in the path. So they get caught in between. Every time these folks go to fight each other, um, Jerusalem um, kind of gets caught up in that, right? Just because of the geography. Okay, so in about 250 BCE, Seleucus's, Seleucus's grandson, Antiochus, married Ptolemy's daughter. So this is where both, there's someone from each of these sides, the north and the south. They're going to actually broker a marriage um, to kind of keep the peace, right, in the family. But the daughter and her entourage and her child were killed as a result of the plotting of Seleucus's mother. So get that. Antiochus' grandmother wipes out her grandson's fiance and her own great-grandchild. So I'm just going to say, if you think you have in-law problems, just take a little heart from the fact that at least your grandmother has not put out a hit on your future bride and her future great-grandchild. So the murdered woman's brother takes the throne in 264 BCE, and this is a reference to his military success. He captures immense territory for the Ptolemies, so that's that kind of area at the end of nine that we're talking about. All right, let's talk um, verses 10, 10 through 13. Let me read real quick. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall advance like a flood and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Moved with rage, the king of the south shall go out and do battle against the king of the north, who shall muster a great multitude, which shall, however, be defeated by his enemy. When the multitude has been carried off, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall overthrow tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail." 
for the king of the north shall again raise a multitude larger than the former, and after some years he shall advance with a great army and abundant supplies. So basically this little section here is just referencing these incursions and battles back and forth between the Seleucid North and the Ptolemy South, which again, Seleucid, Babylon area, Ptolemy, Egypt area on either side of Jerusalem, right? And this, is, this territorial posturing is happening over decades, not just over a couple of years. So this is a story of how this was going back and forth leading up to the current time. Okay, so I'm going to read 14 to 19. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south. The lawless among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, not even his picked troops, for there shall be no strength to resist. But he who comes against him shall take the actions he pleases, and no one shall withstand him. He shall take a position in the beautiful land, and all of it shall be in his power. He shall set his mind to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of peace and perform them. In order to destroy the kingdom, he shall give him a woman in marriage, but it shall not succeed or be to his advantage." Afterward, he shall turn to the coastlands and shall capture many, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. This section is referring to Antiochus III from the north, that's the Babylonian side, moving against Egypt, the Ptolemy south, right? And in successfully doing so, what we're hearing here is that he's successful in being able to move against Egypt. And in doing so, he takes control of Judea. And this is about 200 um, BCE. Judea, and so Jerusalem, right, um, remained under Seleucid control from this point for many, many years. So this is kind of when they, when the Seleucid Empire becomes more active in ruling uh, Israel. Over these years, Antiochus looks to expand his territory. He kind of moves into Asia Minor and captures several Greek islands, but he's eventually defeated by the Romans there in 191 BCE, and he draws back and dies in 187 BCE. So that's Antiochus III, and we're still going to move on to some of the other Antiochus II. Also, not two. All right, let's read 20 to 28. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an official for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, though not in anger or in battle. In his place shall arise a contemptible person on whom royal majesty had not been conferred. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom through intrigue. Armies shall be utterly swept away and broken before him, and the prince of the covenant as well. And after an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully and become strong with a small party. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province and do what none of his predecessors had ever done, lavishing plunder, spoil, and wealth on them. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. 
he shall stir up his power and determination against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with a much greater and stronger army. But he shall not succeed, for plots shall be devised against him by those who eat of the royal rations. They shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall slain. The two kings, their minds bent on evil, shall sit at one table and exchange lies. But it shall not succeed, for there remains an end at the time appointed. He shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall work his will and return to his own land. So what happens here is Seleucus IV succeeds Antiochus, still talking Babylonian northern kingdom in terms of the coded language of this letter in this chapter. He rules for just a dozen years until about 175 BCE. The whole rest of this section is referring to Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who rules the Seleucid Empire from 175 BCE to 164 BCE. So we're finally getting to the ruler who is in the current time of when these writings are happening. All the rest up until this point of this chapter was looking back at the history of these two empires fighting each other and Israel being caught in the middle. He is the ruler now, Antiochus for Epiphanes. He's the ruler under which the Jewish book of law is outlawed, and he's the one who brings the desolating sacrilege into the temple. So um, that's why you're getting all of this language in this chapter about how he's, la he's um, taking the, he's plundering the lavish goods. He um, makes alliances with people on his side. At the end of this section, you hear... Um, the writers say, but his heart shall be set against the Holy Covenant. All of that is about him coming into Jerusalem and getting some of the Jewish leaders to, um, in essence, uh, betray their faith in God by making political uh, li liaisons with this empire. That's kind of the talk that's going on here. And this kind of, hey, he's going to try and fight the South again, but it's not going to happen. They're going to have a big army, all of that talk. Again, in 170, Antiochus invades Egypt. And a year later, he withdraws. And as he moves back through Jerusalem to Babylon, he plunders the temple, which is that talk about him taking um, the uh, lavishing plunder, spoil, and wealth on them. All of that is because as he's in retreat back towards Babylon, back towards the north, he actually plunders the temple and takes um, some of the goods. All right, so let's now read uh, 29 to 35. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but this time it shall not be as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall lose heart and withdraw. He shall be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. He shall turn back and pay heed to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Forces sent by him shall occupy and profane the temple and fortress. They shall abolish the regular burnt offering and set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with intrigue those who violate the covenant. But the people who are loyal to their God shall stand firm and take action. The wise among the people shall give understanding to many. For some days, however, they shall fall by sword and flame and suffer captivity and plunder. 
When they fall victim, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join them insincerely. Some of the wise shall fall, so that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the, end of the, until the time of the end, for there is still an interval until the time appointed. Um, so again, uh, in, in 168 BCE, Antiochus launched a second campaign against Egypt, which again is just their rhythm, right? They're always going back and forth fighting each other. But he was forced to withdraw by the Romans who are now rising up and becoming strong. And we talked about how um, it's gonna move from Greek rule under Alexander the Great to Roman rule, right? In his retreat, um, Antiochus, in his retreat from Egypt and from these uh, islands in the west and the north that he was trying to capture and was in, unsuccessful in doing so, um, he once again attacks Jerusalem and again raids the temple. And in December of 167, he profaned the temple, as I talked about in kind of in the introduction, in outlawing the book of the law and setting up the um, uh, Greek altar in the temple. And so what we're talking about in this chapter about how he was able to, uh, um, you know, uh, bring people onto his side, right? Um, what they're talking about is some of these Hellenizing Jews sided with Antiochus. And what we're told here is, but the wise among the people remained faithful to their Jewish heritage, even as in many of them were forced to lay down their lives. And so the, the last part of that section I just read you is about that, that even some of the faithful had to die for what they believed in. And yet that's not the last word. There is this hint there that, um, that they may be refined, purified, and cleansed until the time of the end, for there is still an interval until the time appointed. So we're starting to get this hint at a reward in the afterlife for those who were faithful to God but died. Um, 36 to 39, the king shall act as he pleases. He shall exalt himself and consider himself greater than any God and shall speak horrendous things against the God of gods. He shall prosper until the period of wrath is completed for what is determined shall be done. He shall pay no respect to the gods of his ancestors or to the one beloved of women. He shall pay no respect to any other God for he shall consider himself greater than all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these. A God whom his ancestors did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses by the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall make more wealthy and shall appoint them as rulers over many and shall distribute the land for a price. Um, so during the persecution, Antiochus grows more and more arrogant. He doesn't even, not only does he not worship the God of Israel, he doesn't worship the other gods as well. He believes that he is um, better than all the gods, stronger than all the gods, a ruler um, mightier than all the gods, right? And the last line of this section references how he rewarded those in Jerusalem, those in Israel who supported him and, sold, and, and he sold favors to them, right? So that's kind of what's being referenced there. So let's finish up this uh, section of this last part of the chapter of 11. Let's go through verses 40 to 45. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. He shall advance against countries and pass through like a flood. 
He shall come into the beautiful land, and tens of thousands shall fall victim. But Edom and Moab and the main part of the Ammonite shall escape from his power. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the riches of Egypt, and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall follow in his train. But reports from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to bring ruin and complete destruction to many. He shall pitch his partial tents between the sea and the beautiful holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with no one to help him. So this section, this very last section of chapter 11, kind of transitions um, from what has been prophecy, prophecy about events that have already happened, right, to an erroneous prediction of Antiochus' death. Um, Antiochus actually dies in Persia, which is the north and the east over in his um, Babylon area in 165 BCE. And so because the author of Daniel does not know how Antiochus died, it's believed that he wrote this vision account before that year, sometime before 165. So we kind of have that um, 164 is kind of the year that that is generally um, thrown about for that. All right, let's go through chapter 12, and we're going to do this uh, a little bit quicker than we did the other. I want to start by saying here in chapter 12, this is actually the only clear, explicit reference to resurrection in the Old Testament. So it's a very interesting passage for us to look at. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. At that time, Michael, the great prince, the protector of your people, shall arise. There shall be a time of anguish such as has never occurred since nations first came into existence. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, keep the words secret and the book sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be running back and forth, and evil shall increase. So Michael, the patron saint of Israel, and the patron angel of Israel, shows up to serve as this angelic defender. And kind of like, it, you, know, you kind of get that taste of the passage from Matthew, where he talks about the separation of the goats and the sheep. Here we're hearing this about the separation um, of folks who are risen from the dust, so re resurrected, brought back up, right? And some go into everlasting life, and some go into everlasting contempt. And this is meant to comfort those who are faithful and yet being persecuted under Antiochus. And let's close out reading these last chapters, 5 to 13. Then I, Daniel, looked... And two others appeared, one standing on this bank of the stream and one on the other. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was upstream, How long shall it be until the end of these wonders? The man clothed in linen, who was upstream, raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven. And I heard him swear by the one who lives forever that it would be for a time, two times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be accomplished. 
I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are to remain secret and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall be purified, cleansed, and refined, but the wicked shall continue to act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. From the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that desolates is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Happy are those who persevere and attain the 1,335 days. But you go your way and rest. You shall rise for your reward at the end of the days. So the book closes with this vision of two men on either side of a stream. And Daniel, we're told Daniel asks how long, and they give him this cryptic reply. And um, so you could say a, a time, two times, and a half time. That could be three and a half years. It could be some other um, point of reference time. Then you have this other reference to the 1,335 days and the other day. So, but again, these are not meant to be um, literal. It's just meant to assure those who are living under persecution that that God is still in control and that at, at some point the persecution will end, whether it be on this side of, the, of this life of the veil or on the other side of the veil, that um, God will redeem them and make them whole. And then you have this uh, reference to keeping the book sealed, Daniel. Again, it's kind of like this is a, a hidden message. Those who are wise are going to be able to understand it. Those who are wicked are not. And again, it kind of comes back to what you see in apocryphal writing, which is that um, there has to be this kind of hiddenness, this kind of coded language, so that they can write these things and share these stories with one another in ways that do not set them up for retribution um, by the Romans. And you basically get this answer of, of, to Daniel's question of, it's not yours to know, and all things will happen in God's time, which is what we're told as well, right? And then it closes by Daniel being told that he will have his reward as one who has been faithful. So that closes out Daniel, and I kind of wanted to um, note a couple things. First of all, um, the Qumran manuscript that the, the, the writings that were preserved and found in Qumrad in, in, in recent um, centuries dates to the, the Qumran manuscript for Daniel dates to the second century BCE. And that's about a half century after this final form of the story that we're reading today. And so um, what I think is kind of fascinating is that the oldest texts that we have um, of the stories in Daniel and the, and the visions in Daniel are closer to their manuscript date, to the, to, the, to the date of the happenings to which they speak than any other manuscript in scripture. There's only this um, basically half century difference between the time about which they're writing and the first manuscript copy that we have of these books, which is kind of a fascinating um, thing to know. And then finally, I'll just close kind of by saying that 
we're now going to be moving from Daniel to Revelation, right? And you'll find a lot of similarity between these vision and prophecy writings in the second half of the book of Daniel and the writing from um, John's Revelation. And so I uh, encourage you as you're making your way through Revelation to kind of... Um, recall phrases and ways of explaining things that you heard in Daniel, because there is this kind of um, pattern and rhythm to how apocryphal writing was um, meant. I mean, apocalyptic writing was meant, uh, was written. And so you're going to get kind of that similarity of images. And so, so I want you to get that not only do we have these visions that show up in Daniel, we have the story in Revelation, and then, then there are other apocalypse stories that did not make it into the final canon. And yet, there is this form of writing apocalypse that was um, not uncommon, that they were written in similar ways. And, and so I want you to get that apocalypse was a type of literature, a type of writing that was meant to be able to convey stories to folks in ways that were masked and guarded to keep safety, and that they were written in ways that talked as if they were referring to future prophecies when in essence they're actually talking about things that are going on right now and what it means in God's greater vision for the world. All right, guys. Well, that's all I've got for you today. And it's been wonderful being with you. Thank you for letting me be here and go off and have a fantastic week. Um, go in peace to love and serve the Lord.